welcome to episode 14 of Anatomy of Tone. In this week's podcast, we're going to check out the Speep Tone Harmonic Jerculator, which is a very unique sounding fuzz pedal we're a real big fan of, and it's very affordable and coming in at $90 on Reverb, which is pretty much the only place that you can find it. And I recommend that you check it out and do some audio demos of it. I'm also going to talk about the benefits of blindfold practicing and what I mean by that and how that can improve your performances, your creativity, and just control of your instrument. We're going to talk about the BG song Staying Alive and an element in the compositional process of them developing that song, which I think we could use or take note of because it's a really cool, subtle effect when we have a song that can start to feel very repetitive. I also want to discuss the idea of why you should write bad music, why it's important for us to make music that we're not attached to in order to be able to grow our craft. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave me a review on Apple Music or any other service that you use. And if you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes of Anatomy of Tone, you can email me or find me at anatomyofguitartone.com. I'm also available for personal lessons in a variety of different areas of music, whether it be guitar, bass, drums, music theory, composition, engineering. I'm also available for session work. So if you need drums, guitar, bass, synthesizer, or you need somebody to write a string arrangement or horn arrangement for your song, reach out because I do all of those things and I have a really nice recording studio where I can get you really wonderful sounding tracks for your music. Let's jump in. As part of my ongoing quest to keep improving and evolve, I've been reading a book from Anders Ericsson called Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. The book takes a look at many individuals who are exceptional at their craft and tries to decode and figure out what separates them from everybody else. They're trying to answer the question, is it a genetic thing? Is it a learned thing? The book is really proposing the idea that expertise or masterfulness is really based on proper practice techniques and education more so than genetics. But it's interesting because in a lot of ways, I agree with what they're saying in the book after a lot of scientific research, but I don't know if I fullheartedly buy that concept, although I do think that the techniques proposed are extremely effective. I've been using them and experimenting with them, and I think they're they're fabulous, and there's a lot to be learned from here. Do I think that that is the case with every individual on Earth? I'm not really sure. I'm not a scientist, uh, so it's hard to say, and especially because I'm deep in the arts, which are highly emotional-based. Uh, it's really hard for me to honestly feel like people can gauge that yet and that maybe we don't have all the skills to really analyze what makes great artists great at what they do. But as far as the craft goes, there are some really good discussions in this book about treating your craft and how to improve. One of the topics in the book or discussions, I should say, focused on a chess player from, I believe it was probably the 19, late 1920s or 30s. His name was Alexander Alekhine. He was Russian world champion. So in 1924, he came to New York City at the Almanac Hotel. He played 26 simultaneous games of chess against opponents blindfolded. And we did them all at the same time. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing, right? That To think that he didn't see any other chess boards. Somebody would just come over to him and tell him what move they made and he would play it out in his brain and tell them what 
want a move he wanted to make, but he was keeping track of 26 games at all times in his head without having a, a physical like a representation in front of him. And he, let's see what, he scored 16 wins, five losses and five draws. I mean, this is pretty amazing. It brought up a conversation about mental representations and how powerful they are, meaning the ability to see things in your head and imagine them as they might be. So consider seeing yourself playing guitar in your mind every time you're playing a fret or if you're playing piano, every time you're placing your finger down on a key and moving to a new chord shape or playing drums, you're playing a groove and moving to the ride cymbal, that instead of you looking at that happening, that you're imagining what your hands are doing while you're seeing it in your head. Through their research, they found that people that were at the highest level of their skills had really strong mental representations. So they knew what this piece of music was going to sound like even before they played it, or they really were able to visualize and imagine what was happening in the moment, not just being a bystander. When I used to see people play without looking at their instrument, I always wondered how they would find their way around the fretboard. That was a muscle memory trick that uh, after a while that they would just know how far the distance was and their fingers would just go there. But really what's happening is they're envisioning their instrument in their head and they can estimate how far away various frets or notes or positions on instrument or how far a drum is away in their mind from knowing what their instrument looks like. And you may be wondering, what's the benefit of that if you can look at your instrument. Why wouldn't you do that? Well, it turns out your eyes can really slow you down and add lag into your playing and trip you up sometimes. It's another stage that your mind has to go through before you're able to execute whatever task. So if I'm looking at the instrument, not only do my eyes have to observe everything that's happening, but I have to send the information back to my brain. It has to compute that along with my imagination and memory, trying to also coordinate to execute whatever idea that I'm trying to in the moment. And one thing you also notice is when you're looking at your instrument, you'll also tend to play more filler notes because you're just seeing things and sometimes you could just grab notes that are there. But when you're playing with your eyes closed or with a blindfold, you have to be a lot more economical about what you're doing because you can't just run your fingers along without any meaning. You have to see every note that you play. And a lot of players feel like this is further down the road that they should be working on maybe their, their way that they're digesting or seeing the fretboard or the drum kit or the piano keyboard in your mind. But actually, it's something that you should start pretty early on if you can in the process. It's really allowing you to also imprint the information in your head. So if you have to learn a G arpeggio, then if you're looking at the instrument, one thing that happens is you're kind of looking at it and, and in a strange way, subconsciously or mind will get a little lazy about how we're imprinting that. But if you have to imagine it without looking at your instrument, imagine what that chord will look like, then you're actually digging a little deeper and you're, you're making a, a harder impression in your mind about the position and the layout of that arpeggio. I've been applying this more regularly over the past couple of weeks since I've been reading the book. And I've always done it, but it was like on and off and I would only sometimes do it and didn't have the courage so much to do it on stage. But I've been trying to play all 
all the time that way now. Only occasionally am I looking at my neck or piano if I have to jump a long distance. Same thing with a drum kit. If it's a drum kit I'm not familiar with, I'll look a little bit to see the, the range of distance between the cymbals and the drums. But for the most part, aside for big shifts in whatever instrument I'm playing, I'm trying to stay within a region and keep my eyes closed. And you could use a blindfold, like a bandana, or turn the lights out, or just kind of keep your eyes closed. But don't cheat. Don't look at the neck. Try to imagine and see the neck in your head. You should be able to see what fret you're on. More importantly, you should be able to know what note that fret is rather than just knowing what the fret is. And we'll have another discussion about the importance of learning the notes on the guitar neck. For now, let's just imagine that you see the guitar neck or the piano keyboard in your head as if you were looking at it and you're watching yourself play those notes from in front of you. I've seen substantial improvement in short period of time. A couple of things I've been working on is I've been playing a lot of baritone guitar and I've been a little lazy about learning all the notes on that. So I know all the notes on the guitar and the bass and you know a bunch of instruments that I play, but the, the baritone, I just got lazy about it because it's a electric guitar basically tuned down a fourth, you know, so. I just was like, well, I'm just going to find my way through it. But it's limiting and it doesn't allow me to always react with what I want to in the moment without having to transpose parts. And I wanted to be able to play it without having to transpose or do a lot of math. So I'm spending time every day learning those notes and running through them, but I'm sitting with the guitar with a blindfold on and I'm running through the neck and I'm just making sure that I'm envisioning what fret I'm on from feeling and I know what those notes are and I'm going to say them out loud. And it's been allowing me to progress quite fast, uh, I must say. I've also been running through a bunch of modes this way on the guitar. I've been running modes through 251 progressions and just in seeing it and then considering where the next linking box to the next mode is, or should I say the next linking note is to the next mode, I really have to take it slow and really think about that and consider all the changes. And I don't have any unneeded stimulus at the same time. My eyes aren't taking in a bunch of information and also saturating my brain. It's just touching the instrument, using my ears and using my memory. I would encourage you to try this for a couple of weeks. Be diligent about what it is you're practicing. Don't be very random. Pick something that you want to try and work on. Maybe if it's even just learning a scale or, you know, playing an arpeggio or a chord shape, close your eyes every day. Work on it for five minutes. Don't peek. Take your fingers in and out of whatever chord or mode or whatever it is you're playing and reset them and just walk through that process. But don't just feel it like you think you know where it's going to be. Imagine it in your head as if it's happening right now, like see it like a film. I think you'll notice a substantial change as well as more freedom in the way that you end up expressing your phrasing. This week I wanted to take a look at a pretty cool moment that happens in the song Staying Alive from the Bee Gees. Now the Bee Gees in the 1970s, although they had a career in the 60s, in the 70s they largely got associated with the disco genre. It became a very popular genre and they started creating music in this because that was where the movement was going. The song Staying Alive was featured in the movie Saturday Night Fever which now, although it was a highly celebrated film, I think it's becoming evident what some of the issues with the film are. There's definitely homophobic and racist content as well as it being portrayed, a character being very male, chauvinistic and hot-headed and 
the scene wasn't really like that. I'm not saying that people like that didn't exist in the scene, but it was much more of a fun party scene. Anger was comprised of a lot of people that were black and Latino or came from the LGBTQT community. It was a really cool place for people to express themselves and just be themselves as they wanted to be. And there's some also interesting history around the demise of disco. Now looking back, I think it's a little clearer for those of us that weren't in some of those communities to see that it was more of a backlash against the LGBTQT community and minority communities. And at White Sox Stadium, they had what was the equivalent of a giant book burning, but with records of gay and black and Latino artists' music. Essentially, amongst the white male communities of America, it became fashionable to say and hate disco music, which was more of a prejudice about the culture of disco than it was about the actual music of disco. Really, it was an amazing community of people and the music was fabulous. We still, to this day, embrace a lot of the musical techniques that were created through the disco music in pop music and many other forms of music. Despite my feelings about the content of Saturday Night Fever and the origins of where the story came from, which by the way, came from an article written by a British journalist who essentially just made up a bunch of commentary about the disco scene that they hadn't even experienced. So it was fabricated. The author mentioned years later that he very, knew very little about the disco movement, the disco scene. And this is what the movie Saturday Night Fever is based on. So it's not even based on real factual experiences or stories. I just think it's important to also know where music comes from and why shifts have happened throughout history. Now on to the musical theory aspect of Staying Alive. One thing that I really liked about this song was if we think of the opening phrase where the riff is, the main riff of the song, it goes from the one chord, we're going to be in the key of F minor, and then we're going to go to the four chord, which is B flat. We're going to have two bars of F minor and two bars of B flat. So one minor to the four major chord. This is going to be the same throughout the song until we get to the bridge, which has that same exact riff. But now all of a sudden, instead of a four bar phrase, we're going to deal with a five bar phrase. We're going to stay on that four chord, the B flat chord for one extra bar. So it's a five bar phrase. So we play the riff for two bars in F minor, and then we play the B flat chord for three bars. Now, this creates an interesting tension to the song because our ears have really established that four bar phrase in the beginning. It's the main riff of the song. Everybody knows that part. We could just sing it in our head. And even the first time you listen to the song, you really hear it and digest it in a way that you know it. So when that bridge comes along, and instead of it being an entirely different section of the song, they're reusing the same material that they have, but they stretched it by one arm, by one bar, just to play with your expectations a little bit. So you think you know where it's going to end because you've been hearing it several times in the song by the time the bridge comes. And then it defies your expectations and it's a five bar phrase instead of four bar phrase. And it just like wakes you up a little bit, makes you like, wait, what happened there? You know, because it's, it's uh, surprising you a little bit because you thought you knew what was going to happen. This is a really effective technique to create some variation in your song, especially if you've really established an idea. So like I said, in the beginning of the song, as we keep rolling through the song, it's expected that it's a four bar phrase, two bars in the one, two bars in the four chord. But later when we get to a bridge, instead of coming up with an entirely new section of the song, which you know, may take us too much out of the vibe. Sometimes when we create a bridge, we don't want to have a bridge that sounds so radically different. There's a big key change or any big shifts. We want it to stay similar, 
but we want a variation so it doesn't feel completely repetitive. So instead of just looping bars over and over again, we want to keep the same idea, but inject a little bit of freshness into it. And that's what they did in this part of the song when in the bridge they added that one extra bar B flat. It's a subtle thing, but that subtlety really goes a long way. So you don't lose the drone-like state that you're in, that the song puts you in, the trance-like state from just that groove and that riff happening over and over again. But it also, it doesn't feel like you're getting bored, which I think is really a smart songwriting. And they were really great songwriters and people have underestimated the Bee Gees a lot. They've had a really long career. They've written a lot of great songs to themselves and other people. They really got the craft of songwriting. I'm gonna put this chart on my website and you can check it out if you like. It does have the riff in it as well as the form and the layout of the song. So anatomyofguitartone.com. If you look in the menu, there's a tab that says anatomy of tone, which is content that I'll post on my website from uh, the topics I've been talking about here and like the lessons and theory and stuff. <laughs> Often as songwriters and composers, we put a lot of pressure on us and every time we create a new piece, it needs to be our best piece. It has to be our masterpiece. And this creates a lot of unneeded pressure and I find can stunt a lot of creativity. At one point I started recognizing the destructive nature of this way of thinking and I started trying to counter that. And one exercise that really helped me with that was writing library music. So a number of years ago, I got into writing library music for various TV shows. And there wasn't a lot of time to think when I was making cues. The point of that game is really to create as much music as quickly as possible because that's how you make money. It's more of a quantity thing, sometimes even more so than the quality. Although I do strive for the quality to be high, but changes your standards in some ways of not overthinking what you're doing and everything having to be your masterpiece. Well, it turns out this was actually a very helpful process for me because one thing it did is it helped me to get out of my way. I was just writing pieces for fun. They weren't particularly long pieces, but they would be in genres of music or an idea of a song that I would never maybe release under my own name. So it allowed me to get creative and try things and expand my craft without it necessarily being directly related to my what I'm presenting as my art. I realized how important it is to make sure that we're making a variety of music, and not only just a variety of music, but have a variety of expectations and intentions when we're making music. So I don't think it's very productive to approach every piece you're writing and as soon as you're writing it to be putting the pressure on it that this has to be my best piece, has to be my most complicated piece, it has to be this, has to be that. I think you should just let it be. And, and even beyond that, I think you should intentionally write music that isn't intended to be your best music. So write bad music. What do I mean by that? Well, maybe you write something that's corny or satirical or funny or you know, dark or what's the opposite that you normally write music. And it doesn't even have to be something that you present to somebody. Maybe nobody else will ever hear that music, but you will and you'll use this as a breeding ground for new ideas and expansion. Meaning it's really hard to use pieces that you're very attached to if you're emotionally involved in them as 
you know, a whiteboard to try out new ideas or to get better at your craft. One of the traps that composers and musicians, artists get locked into is that they tend to think that music is magic. I don't want to take some of the illusion out of it, but it's not really magic. I mean, the emotional part is, and I think that's the part that makes everybody unique and creative is that everybody walks around with a different life experience, different ways of feeling and reacting and having emotions about events that have happened in their lives. This informs the music and the way that they write music. So that's the magical part of it. But aside from that, the rest of it really is a craft and it's a craft that you have to work on just like a carpenter has to hone their skills or anybody else that's working on a skill based craft. They have to spend time and, and contemplate different ways of maneuvering around the craft. You can't really do that effectively if you're treating everything you write as being precious. You need to write some music that you're not attached to. And that's what library music did to me. It allowed me to create a lot of music that I wasn't attached to so I could look at it in a different way. I can try different forms. I could try different orchestrations. I could try different chord cycles or modulations. And I could really experiment and just hear how different ideas worked to put in my mental library for later for when I might need to dig myself out of a problem area in a song. And sometimes you're writing a song and you hit a point and you hit a roadblock and you're not really sure how to get out of it. And this is where the craft comes in. So the craft doesn't come in when you're coming up with the initial idea. It comes in after you have the idea and you're trying to expand or finish or tighten up the song. This is the point when you look at your knowledge base and you say, okay, well, there's a problem area in the song. How do I fix it? Well, I can use this technique that I've experimented with. If you're using a song that you're really attached to, trying to experiment and develop your process or your craft is going to become a lot more frustrating and you're going to find yourself getting burnout. I think partly just because of the emotional attachment to the song. To deal with this, I intentionally write music that I know isn't going to be my best music or I'm not really going to stick with. It is a step up from using an exercise because I don't want to just do a complete random exercise when I'm composing. I also don't want to sit there and always need to come up with something emotionally deep to be able to work out my craft. So have like a side project that you're working on. It's one way I think about it. And maybe your thing is writing quirky songs about breakfast cereal. I mean, it could be anything really. And that's so far-fetched and kind of weird and lame. But just having something like that can really allow you to try some stuff out and, and maybe almost be a character and be the person that's not yourself. I do this not only to work on my craft, but I also have a lot of different interests in music. You could find me playing classical music and, and composing for the classical genre. You could find me playing metal. You could find me playing um, early Delta blues, uh, rock music, punk. I come from a lot of different areas. One thing that helps my creativity is if I'm starting to feel burnt out in one area, I move to another area. And that has to do with the creative aspect of it, of how not to become burnout, being creative all the time. But as far as working on your craft, definitely having some music that you're not attached to is important. And it's important that it's your own music too. And you go on that journey and they don't have to be long songs. You don't have to do three, four minute songs. Maybe treat it like a television cue or a film cue, maybe treat it somewhere between like a minute and a minute and a half is about the standard length that I was doing for a lot of the TV and film cues. That's a great length. It allows you to get into a composition and have 
maybe one or two rounds of a form and have a starting and an ending. And I encourage you to finish it, follow it through, but don't be judgmental about it. Go wherever it goes, be as weird or unlike yourself as you can, and just try out as many different techniques as you can. And that way, save your original music that you're very serious about for when you're only applying those techniques, not trying them out. I think you'll find this sets you free and you'll find much fewer moments where you're feeling frustrated or stuck because we're building up new skills in our craft. And then we're also not overstressing a piece of music that we have an emotional attachment to. this week's pedal chemistry segment, I want to discuss a cool fuzz pedal that I've discovered. There's a company called Speedtone, and they make a pedal called the Harmonic Jerculator. Now, this pedal is a really unique circuit. It's not based on another classic circuit. Like a lot of times you find fuzz pedals and they're based off a of fuzz face or a tone bender or a big muff. This is really doing its own thing. Now, it does have origins in another rare fuzz pedal that was called the Harmonic Percolator. There was a further twist on the original Harmonic Percolator by Tim Escobedo. So the Harmonic Jerculator is a nod to the Harmonic Percolator and also Tim Escobedo's circuit that he designed to meticulously mimic the original Percolator. So Speeptone, who then created many more variations to the circuit to make its own thing. They're really cool. They come in a very unusual box. It's a junction box that you would get at a hardware store and they're painted often like a ceramic or pottery paint glossy mine is this really cool purple color with glitter in it and they're distressed everything is hand sanded hand drilled so he hand drills every single pedal and it's really interesting because they don't look like a usual pedal they look homemade like we're living in a world now where the boutique or hand-built name gets thrown around a lot and there are some companies that are using fancy screen printed casings and their pedals are actually OEM manufactured by another company in, in, in a factory, maybe not a giant factory, but a factory. And then they put the name on it and they get lumped into the category of handmade pedals or boutique pedals. And I'm not criticizing the sound of some of those pedals. I'm just saying they clearly, they don't look handmade and they aren't handmade, even though some people may think that they might be this is clearly a handmade pedal, and I think Steve makes it look that way and lets all the colors of its original uniqueness be shown. What's cool, though, is usually if you would think you would get a handmade pedal of that nature, that it would feel a little flimsy or just wouldn't be robust. But the harmonic jerculator is very robust. The pots on it are some of the most solid pots that I've turned or used on a pedal of, of any price. And all the foot switches are really great, and the jacks are great. I say it's it's a very it feels like a very strong pedal. There's some cool features on this pedal, and it has um it doesn't actually have a gain knob on it, so the the amount of fuzz is preset into the pedal. What you do have is you have a volume knob, which just changes the output of the pedal. We also have a voltage starve knob, and this is where a lot of the magic happens. One of the things that drew me to this pedal is I saw a demo video, and in the demo video, there was this tube sag-like sound coming from this fuzz pedal. Now, for those of you that don't know what tube sag is, 
if you haven't ever gotten the opportunity to play through, say, a Fender Tweed Deluxe or a Tweed Amp where you just turn it all the way up and can't go any further, and then you hit a note or a chord and you hit another note or chord after that, you feel like the the signal get compressed and it just drops down a little bit because it's just, it's sagging because it's reached its full capacity. And that's just a really cool squishy compression-like effect that happens from certain amps when you get them really loud. Now, I've not really heard that too much in a fuzz pedal. Now, the Evil Filter from Death by Audio has a fuzz circuit in it that does do a little bit of a tube sag thing, but it just sounds, it's its own beast. You know, it's, it's, it's a unique pedal and it's own right and it doesn't do the same thing as the harmonic jerculator so you don't really hear the tube sag style effect too often in a fuzz pedal but this had it and i was really excited about that because it definitely did it in a different way than the evil filter and you could play with the voltage starve button to adjust the way or how much you get of that sag the third knob on here is we have a knob there's actually a, a loop on here a feedback loop and it's a momentary switch the second switch that's on the pedal it's a momentary switch and what happens when you press that switch down is it creates a feedback loop it takes takes the affected sound that you have and it runs it back through the input of the pedal but it keeps your input active too so you're actually playing against the feedback loop that's coming in underneath it. Depending on where you have the pot set, you can either have it set so when you hit the momentary foot switch that it creates a stutter-like effect, or as you turn it up, it kind of starts to oscillate more. It could be a noise machine and could get really chaotic and cool for noise scaping. And to the extent that you can actually use it without a guitar plugged into it, it'll just oscillate. So you can hold down the momentary foot switch and just play with the, the knob and create really cool noisy oscillation effects. And it's also a great noise making pedal, which is neat because the whole thing isn't just a noise pedal. You could use it traditionally like a fuzz, but it also without too much tweaking, you can, you can get very weird with it. Uh, one other additional feature is on the side. We have a toggle switch and that toggle switch basically changes the input capacitor so that if we wanted to, we could set it up so it's going to work better with a bass guitar and in one position it's going to work better with electric guitar. Now, that's another place that you can experiment, but in, if you find yourself needing more low end and just you want to use it traditionally, then you have that switch. Let's listen first to the sound of the harmonic jerculator with the recommended setting from Steve, which was setting the voltage starve knob at 3 p.m. And now I'm using a Stratocaster and I'm running into a Vox AC15 where I'm getting a little breakup. Let's actually hear what the amp sound is like first. I'm also running through a Surfy Bear Metal. Spring reverb, that's where we're getting the reverb from. So let's try this now. I'm going to kick in the harmonic jerculator. We get a cool grungy garagey sound out of it too. Stratocaster with FSC 59 round pickups in it. Let's try some single note lines. Let's 
try rolling the volume knob back before I change any of the settings on the pedal. I get aggressive on the neck pickup. I turn up the surfy bear metal a lot. I'm going to turn down the voltage star knobs. Let's go to nine o'clock. Move to bridge position. stick a wah-wah in front of it just to hear how it reacts. I'm using the Tease RMC picture wah in front of the Speep Tone Harmonic Jerculator. The RMC picture wah has special circuitry that makes it friendly with fuzz pedals. Switch to the neck pickup. Pull the volume knob down a little bit. Switch amps. A Les Paul standard with Voodoo 59 pickups in it into the Speed Tone Harmonic Jerculator into the Marshall Plexi. That's the sound of the amp 
with no fuzz. Kick in the fuzz. Roll the volume knob on my bridge pickup back. Neck pickup. I was getting some really cool ring modulation-like effects on top of it. So I was playing on the 12th, or actually the 14th fret, but it was picking up almost the lower octave of, of some of those notes, which was really cool. It's a, it's a neat sound. I had on the neck pickup, on the Les Paul, and the volume knob all the way up. You could just really hear the note sag. Check it out. If I just play a few single notes, you just hear it. What an awesome garagey sound. Let me turn the voltage starve knob down to nine o'clock. You can really hear it sagging in that riff I just played. I have it on the bridge pickup now through the Marshall Plexi, which is kind of hot. And the combination of those two elements together, the dirty amp and the harmonic tricolator and Les Paul with humbuckers is just fabulous. I want to experiment with the noise loop now. I'm going to depress down the feedback loop button, which is a momentary switch. I have the oscillator knob at like just right before nine o'clock. So when I press down the pedal, it's going to sound like this. eventually just settles on a pitch. I'm going to play along, let it settle on the pitch, and I'm going to play against that drone.
create some noise scapes using the harmonic jerculator, an Analog Man ADR X20 analog delay, and a Chase Bliss CXM 1978. And my pot is a little dirty on my Les Paul, but it actually creates kind of a cool chaotic sound. So I'm actually going to use that to its advantage instead of thinking of it as a negative since this is like a noise chaotic soundscape vibe. If I just turn the pedal on, turn my volume up a little bit, we hear this. Pedal's oscillating and I'm adjusting my volume knob and it's changing the pitch. Sometimes you have to play with the effects and just the knobs to find the spot that's really working for a desired sound effect. One thing I might do is then I might have a sampler hooked up and play back. And as I'm finding the spots I like, I might just sample that and then manipulate them further because a lot of these moments are very unpredictable when they happen with the oscillation and noise. It's hard to replicate every time. So always have the tape rolling and you might capture something magical, which then you can manipulate after the fact. I think we should check this out with a bass. I'm running through a vintage Ampeg V48 bass head, playing a P bass with flat wounds. starve knob at nine o'clock. I'm just going to switch the capacitor switch on the side. A bit more of a brassy, throatier sound. Back to its original position, which is up. It's cool. That's what I guess is the bass boost option or the, the one UF option of the capacitor. They both sound really awesome. This one obviously in the upright position has the low end to it, but I would discount the other one even for bass because it really almost has like, um, like a Beatles like fuzz bass tone to it, which is really cool. I'm going to play with the momentary foot switch to engage the oscillator. It just makes it sound really like buzzy. It's a 
cool. You can do really interesting things. I, I really like the momentary feedback loop switch a lot with the bass because you can do some exciting stuff. I'm going to flip the input capacitor down and play with the momentary switch to see how that affects it. It's not just for creating weird feedback loops. You can use it in a very interesting, almost creates like an underlying melody within a part that you're playing with, or I should say like a second texture. I'm gonna to switch to a Warwick bass now. It's an active five string bass. I've now plugged in an ARP 2600 into the harmonic jerculator, which then is running into the Chase Bliss CXM 1978 with a lot of pre-delay on it and the reverb is pretty cranked. I'm also going to be playing around with the inclusion of one of the third oscillator on the ARP 2600 to create an effect against the melody here. So here I'm going to mess around and you can hear how the fuzz is just playing around with the ARP. Turn the fuzz off. That's just what the normal sound is. But then when I kick on the fuzz, the jerculator. I'm just playing with the filter on the ARP 2600. Which is feeding the jerculator. Any of the changes I'm making on the ARP are going to the fuzz and having a reaction.
now I'm just playing with the mix knob on the CXM. The reverb resets itself oscillate as well. So as you can see, you can get some really interesting sounds with using a fuzz pedal like the harmonic turculator, even with synthesizers. I hope you enjoyed episode 14 of Anatomy of Tone. I hope you join me next week for the next installment of this series, where we'll have plenty of new things to talk about and gear to check out. I'm going to leave you with a cue that I wrote called Cotton Candy Breath. The idea was it is reminiscent of thinking of going to a circus when you were a child, but not being there, more like revisiting in your mind where it's almost a slow motion, black and white scene of you recalling the events that happened. So the tempo is slow low and the sounds are presented in a way that it, it almost feels like you're in a dream state where I used a lot of Mellotron on this track. Uh, sometimes I use the slow speed of the tape on the Mellotron to help get a little bit more of that, that sluggish kind of dreamlike effect.